and the war officially started on February 24th this year when the Russian president announced a special military operation in Ukraine. And Russia authorized and used military force for troops to enter Ukraine. And minutes later, missiles and airstrikes hit across Ukraine, including Kyiv, the large cities of eastern, western, northern, and southern Ukraine. The large-scale invasion came from multiple directions. But so far, Russia, Russian effort to capture Kyiv failed. They were unable to achieve the quick victory in Kyiv and were forced to switch their strategy and instead start bombing and destroying the eastern and southern cities of Ukraine. As a result, Russia received widespread international condemnation and the United Nations General Assembly passed a resolution condemning the invasion and demanding a full withdrawal of Russian forces from Ukraine. Today is the 137th day of war in Ukraine, and by God's providence and protection, Ukraine is still fighting to protect its home, country, and people. Also, let's continue to pray for Ukraine to win this war. Why do we pray? Because in Ukraine we have friends, brothers, sisters, and partner churches who are living their lives in the war zones and working to share the gospel and provide humanitarian aid. Why should we continue to pray? Because we hope in God to resolve this situation. Refuge can be found in him alone. Of course, biblically speaking, Ukraine is not Israel, but God has his people and his church in Ukraine who are suffering because of this war. But war is not the only force that causes fear in this world. There are many fears around us today, even domestic. Some people fear Trump, others fear Biden. Some people fear Putin, some Xi Jinping, some Al-Qaeda, communists, and other groups such as NATO, LGBTQ plus agenda, or Muslims. People are also troubled by all kinds of conspiracies, such as the behind-scenes government, Masonic order, socialist agenda, Marxism ideology, World War III, propaganda, enemies everywhere, you name it. There is only one way of processing all these fears and all these worries, through the lens of God's word, which provides clarity, and guidance for our life. God sent a warning to his prophet Isaiah saying, Do not call conspiracy all that these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, not be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. Isaiah 8, 12, 13. So, let's turn to the Psalm 76. And the title of the Psalm is Fear of the Lord. We know as we study through the book of Psalm, that Psalm 76 is located in the third book. And the third book of Psalm contains a great deal of lamentation and complaint. The theme of divine judgment, 
both positive and negative, comes to the forefront in many of the psalms in Book 3. Contemplating the psalms give us a mirror in which to explore God's faithfulness or our lack of trust in Him, as, as well as knowledge of God who is able to reconcile everything to Him. It is not always possible to find the reason for the placement of certain psalm in the Psalter, but in this case, Psalm 76 follows the last psalms. And we can see in the effect there are links between Psalm 74, 75, and 76. Psalm 74 looks at violence and injustice that is this world and asks the Lord to intervene. In Psalm 75, God speaks to say that it is an appointed time he will act both to strike down the arrogant and to lift up the meek and afflicted. And today, Psalm 76 celebrates the dramatic incident in which God did exactly that. He utterly destroyed Israel's enemies. In all these three Psalms, God is viewed as the judge before whom every must one day stand and with whom all must eventually come to terms. And today, my proposition is our praise flows out of our fear of the Lord and our understanding of his power and his judgment. I want to repeat, our praise flows out of our fear of the Lord and our understanding of his power and judgment. And today I want to give you the three points where we're going to be discussing. And first is God's name is great. The second is going to be the God's enemies are helpless. And we're going to see that God alone is to be feared. So let's start from first is God's name is great. And we know God is great not because he is known, but he is known because he is great. According to this psalm, God is a righteous judge whose wrath is constantly hanging over those who are in his enemies and enemies of his people. So the first verse of this psalm saying, In Judah God is known, and his name is great in Israel. And we, looking back to the Genesis 32, Jacob wrestled with God all night. And in this uh, history moment, at dawn, Jacob would not let go of the Lord and insisted on having a blessing. God then named Jacob Israel because he had striven with God and with men and prevailed. That's why Israel means he who is striven with God. When the psalmist sings this psalm fervently, knowing God's ability and faithful love, then the conclusion of this is God's name is great. And the second verse states that his tabernacle is a Salem. A tabernacle is the residence, dwelling place, home, or tent. It is where the people go to meet with God with worship and prayer. Salem means peace or peaceful. It's another name for Jerusalem. God lives in peace. And when we go to God, we go to his home of peace. We can be at peace 
as we commute with God. His dwelling place also is in Zion. God not only lives in Salem in peace, but he also dwells in Zion. The name Zion means a monumental pillar, a guiding pillar, a waymark. It is also used for another name of Jerusalem. When we go to God in prayer or worship, we see him as our guiding pillar, our waymark to show us how to live. And Isaiah, giving this statement in chapter 2, verse 3, And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountains of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his path. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Jacob and Israel experienced the triumph of God, who made a great name for himself in his victories. He is the warrior who does ahead of his people, who goes ahead of his people. Nothing can stop him. The collection of weapons take from the enemy witnessed his power. He has made an end of the war by inhaling the arsenal of the nations. And the end of verse 3 is the flashing arrows and shields and the swords. And continuing in the psalm, the next we see, and we can compare, in Christ, God is known. Many who call themselves Christians, sadly, uh, nations, Christian nations, have despised, if not persecuted, the Jewish people. And we know the history, European kings, crusades, Roman Catholic Church, the Church of Third Reich, Russian Orthodox Church, often in the name of God. Yet, all the time, this psalm was there to remind believers that in Judah, God is known. They will know nothing of their own Christian God where it is not for Israel and Judah, Salem and Zion. They are alone our Christian heritage with all its ramification has its roots. Salvation, above all, you like it or not, is from the Jews. And Psalm 147, 1920 say, He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt those with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. God makes himself known in a particular way. God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ in a way that now fulfills the Old Testament revelation and amplifies it. There is no one else who does this. No one but Jesus can say, I and the Father are one, John 10.30. And anyone who sees me see, has seen the Father, John 14.9. To the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus said, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation 
is from the Jews. Paul's, Paul says in Romans, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Romans 9, 4, 5. So we see in the first three verses that God's name is great. And then we, in verses 4 to 6, show us that God's enemies are helpless. So let's turn to the verses 4 to 6 and let's expose it on these verses. So the first section is here, God's involvement is glorious and majestic. The first theme of this main body of the psalm is the defeat of some great enemy of the Jews. A defeat so complete that no one of the enemies was able even to raise a hand against them. And we can read how, how majestic this song is. Glorious are you more majestic than the mountains full of prey. The star-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sunk into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. In this case, the prey looks remarkably like the army of Sennacherib. This event has been recorded in 2 Kings 18 to 19 chapter and Isaiah 36 and 37. God said the arrow and shield would have no place in the siege of Jerusalem. And God sent his angel. Second king record the event this way. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead. Then Shinebarim, king of Arsia, departed and went home and lived in Nineveh. Second King 1935-36. Let's just reflect on this, on this situation. We know how army build up their forces before they, they are attacked. So they go mostly on a high hills to set up their tents. And just imagine, if there was army of 185,000 people, there was the slaves, there was the animals, there was the weapon holders, and all these people were building their tents and their equipment and the army is things around in the area. And during their preparation, you sh they sharpening their axes, swords, arrows, spears, and they did all their preparation for attack. And the last day before attack, they go to rest, to sleep overnight, and to go to attack Jerusalem. And what happened, and Bible saying that God sent only one angel who struck in one night 100, 
85,000 warriors. They not wake up. So this song gives the representation how enemies of God are helpless. And we see that the psalmist is pointing out that God's power is over the imaginary power of the nations. The kings and rulers of the mighty nations are helpless men. They rebel against God and against his people. They rely on power. The metaphor for political power and military strength, all the men of war. But human warriors pass away into their last sleep and are powerless to raise their strong hands. Every victory over the enemies comes because God's involvement is glorious and majestic with and for his people. The enemies are felled by the rebuke of the Lord, verse 6, with both rider and horse laying stunned. God's enemies are defeated. That's it. In the history recorded for us in the Old Testament, we see a God who saves his people. Noah from the flood, the Lord from heavenly fire, Israel from the slavery of Egypt, even from slavery of Babylon, Philistines. And I like how John MacArthur saying uh, the following in his book, None Other, chapter 6, which we recently studied with our youth, this way. The God of Old Testament was known to his people as a Savior. Israel knew God as the Savior, a saving God. To use other words, he is a deliverer. He rescues people from the bondage and death. Of course, that's not how it is in the science of ontology and the world of religion and deities. Study ancient Middle Eastern religion. Are you not going to find God who saved? Virtually every man-made religion system ever known features some means by which the worshiper, by his own effort, can save himself, or at least, very least, better himself. But you are not going to find any man-made God who is by nature a savior or rescuer. So we see that God is mighty to save, and the true meaning of the gospel and its central truth is that God is the saving God, and Jesus Christ is the savior. Loving-kindness defines his character. We do not know the reason why God chose to save Israel, and we must confess together as a church that we do not know why God chose to save us, but we know only that it is for his glory. And certainly, not because he finds us deserving of him. It is because he is victorious and saving by nature. And again, this is a powerful description of God's mighty hand. God's enemies were defeated before the battle even started. They are helpless to fight against the Lord. So we see in these first three verses that God's name is great. And the verses 4 to 6 show us that God's enemies are helpless. Now let's now look at the verses 7 to 10 of this psalm, which show us that God alone is to be feared. 
Verse 7, who can stand before you? But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? Unbelievers mostly ignore God and dismiss all seriousness of his judgment. Why is that? Possibly because people really do fear judgment and they bury thoughts of what is too horrible and uh, even to contemplate. This is evident in how people laugh at the idea of judgment, hell, and those who believe it. Therefore, they feel they are not bound to any kind of consequences for their sin that will bring about their own damnation. But let's come back to the bottle. We see that one angel of the Lord took the life of 185,000 warriors in one night. In the term of the war, enemies had no chance to win. None. No option. When God is executing his judgment, this is serious, and there is no escape from it. The book of Revelation describes the fear of people at the final judgment, saying, They call to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Revelation 6, 16, 17. Then we go to the verse 8 and we see that every mouth will be silenced by God's judgment. God rules over the nation. To the end, the psalmists portray him as the great judge of the universe speaking from the heaven. One of the most objectionable characteristics of people who do wrong is that they never seem to admit it. On the contrary, they are always making excuses for the wrong behavior, trying to get in the last word of self-serving, self-justifying explanations. But there will be no final words from the sinners at the last judgment. That is why Paul writes in Romans, Whatever the law say, it say to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced, and the whole world held accountable to God. Romans 3.19 The psalmist captured the same thought when he says that faith with God's judgment, the earth, feared, and was quiet. And then we go to the verse 9. God brought and mercy for the afflicted. In verse 9, we see that the display of God's wrath is only one part of what the final judgment is about. However, other side of wrath is mercy. And mercy will be shown by God to the meek and afflicted on the earth. In the historical judgment, there is an occasion for this psalm. This was mercy to Israel. In the judgment of the last days, it will be mercy to those who have trusted in Jesus Christ and the Lord as the Lord and Savior. We may be wondering today, today, why Israel seems not accepting Christ as their Lord and Savior. And we may even think that God has abandoned Judah. But Paul, uncovering the mystery of God's plan in Romans 11, 25, 29. Let's be wise in your own sight. 
I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come to Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, there are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, there are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Let's move to the verse 10. Uh, verse 10. We're saying God's glory in his wrath. All acts are under God's sovereign control. Even the most hostile acts against his sovereign rule will bring him praise. We can see how God turned man's rebellious expression of anger into his glory. Yes, whatever rebellious expression remains or remnant of it, it is for his glory. The Lord has armed himself against man's rebellious hostility. When God goes out as a king, all his opponents, opponents will all their, with all their wrath will submit to the lordship of God. All will submit. And to conclude our time in this psalm, let's look at verse 11 and 12. Make your woes to Yahweh, your God, and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cut off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by kings of the earth. The psalm close with imperatives addressed apparently to both Israel, we see the Lord your God, and the second part to all the neighbor's land. Israel is ordered to present an offering, probably an expression of thanksgiving. The kings of the earth are to bring gifts that are, in other words, a tribute to the victorious king. This term is used by Isaiah also in chapter 18.7, which describes foreign peoples bring gifts to the temple, Zion, and Jerusalem. At that, at that time, tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth, from a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering. Those land, the rivers divide, to Mount Zion, the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, Isaiah 18.7. And we can read this in Revelation uh, chapter 5, 11, 14. When I look and I hear around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with the loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I hear every creature in heaven, on the earth, under earth, and in the sea, and all that in, in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne 
and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. All will submit. And we learn in this psalm that our praise flows out of our fear of the Lord. And because we see his majestic power and his dreaded judgment. And today I have only one question. Is God the only whom I fear? I want to repeat. Is God the only whom I fear? We see that Jesus is not only the excellent teacher, a great humanist, an extraordinary person, but in fact, he is the son of the living God, the creator, the redeemer of the world, and the savior of the mankind, the lamp. We understand and believe that Jesus is Christ, the son of God. Jesus claims to be the Lord Almighty, Christ the Lord, beginning and the end, mighty Israel, creator, great I am. He is not only the one who organized the kingdom of God on earth, but also the creator of this world, the redeemer and king. Jesus Christ was the God of Old Testament, and it was he who spoke to Abraham and Moses. It was he who inspired Isaiah and Jeremiah. We know the Lord is alive, and I know that he reveals his thoughts and will to us daily so that we may be inspired by the direction in which we are going to move. He is the main cornerstone. He is the head of the kingdom. We are his followers. We are his church. These are his teaching and ordinances. These are his commandments. This is his testament. Now we look forward to his second coming, promised by him. His promises will indeed be fulfilled as many of his other promises has been fulfilled. In the meantime, we glorify his holy name and serve him. Jesus said we should always be vigilant because we do not know the time when he will come again. If we reject the will of God and want to live for ourselves, we are purposefully acting against what God wants us to do by ignoring his commandments. This is a great danger, to neglect the word of God and the lordship of Jesus Christ. We are, there are two types of people we can meet in this world. First, those deciding to live to themselves, dedicating their lives to following the pleasures of their hearts, evil desires, and doing whatever it takes to fulfill their plans. This is the characteristic of those for whom Jesus is not the Lord. To those for whom Jesus is the Lord, does not do his own will, but the Lord's will. These are the people who dedicate their lives to follow God's word and worship Jesus. They are experiencing the lifelong process of sanctification, which bears visible fruits of their lives. Those people want to understand what God expects from them and live out those expectations. If I want Jesus to be my Lord and Master, Christ must become my only fear, my focus, and my life. He is the source of 
of life. He freed those possessed with demons who came to him. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. I can ask myself today, is Christ my life? Perhaps for someone, the meaning of their life is a hobby, a beloved pet, spouse, child, a business, sport, or bad habit of wise. Sometimes at the end of a preoccupied life, a person may realize that nothing has meaning and all their striving was pointless. Unfortunately, for many Christians today, Jesus is not part of their lives. They live as they wish, remembering God on Christmas and Easter. My hope is that Christ becomes all of our life. Every morning, as soon as we wake up, we must seek Him, seek to know Him, to know His Word, to live in Him, to breathe in Him, to exist knowing his will, meeting him in prayer, and having a relationship with him becomes the main focus of life. Christianity is not a hobby. Christianity is Christ in all. This is a weighty statement for all of us who are God's children. It is a call to surrender to the commands of Christ and to submit to the Lordship of Christ. This should be the governing principle of every life that bows before Jesus as Savior and Lord. And it's nothing less than a complete, wholehearted, and absolute surrender to the rule and reign of Christ over our life. This is pure Christianity for us. And I won't call us to pray. Dear God, you majestic and powerful God. And we in this morning present our hearts, our lives before you, and we thank you for your truth in your word, which is working in our heart, open our minds to understand how powerful, how mighty, how big, how wonderful you are. And only in your word we can find this, we can find truth and peace for our life and our hearts. And we are blessed because of you, because we know our future. And we want our future with you, not just in this life, we want our future with you in heaven. So please help us, God, to glorify you, to fear you, to understand who you are, how majestic and how powerful you are. And we ask in this moment, just bless everyone who is today in this meeting and touch their hearts. And maybe some people want to be encouraged by your word. And we ask you to touch their hearts and produce the work of the spirit of their hearts so they're gonna lean to you and we're also praying for Ukraine we know the our friends and your church there who work with people who share the gospel and hope in you
because you're the only refuge. You're the only peace. And we ask you to bless them over there, protect them, give them, give them your power, God, to overcome all these circumstances and worship your name. Tune to the, your word, tune to your word for the encouragement, to pray, for the praise, for the worship, because you are over this world you are bigger than this world, and we glorify you as our Savior and Lord. Please bless everyone who is here. In Jesus' name, amen.